You're listening to the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network podcast. In each episode, we seek to understand what racial equity is, how it relates to hunger and hunger relief efforts, and discover practical ways we can implement anti-hunger strategies with a racial equity lens during COVID-19. Hey everyone, my name is Marlisa D. Gamblin, founding co-chair of the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network, and I am joined by my fellow co-chair today, Donald Wood. Hello, Marlisa, and hello, everyone. I am really excited to be here and even more excited to be on this podcast. I thought before we get into today's conversation, though, that we should give a quick explanation of the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network, since this is our first episode. Absolutely. I completely agree. So along with our wonderful uh, colleagues and fellow co-chairs, Marianne Bugs and Monica Gonzalez, we actually launched the network at the beginning of 2020, as some of you might already know. Um, our network has individuals, organizations, policymakers, um, and the like at the local level, the state level, the regional level, and national levels, all committed to ending hunger. So we recognize to achieve this because communities of color have consistently um, experienced higher rates of hunger, we have to focus on race. This means that we have to undo systemic racism which obviously also means that we have to apply a racial equity lens. So this network uh, is really designed to equip ourselves with the tools, uh, community, and also the resources to do this work, both on the individual level and collectively. Ooh, yes, that's such a tall order, but that's what makes this network such a potential community change agent. The fact that it is designed to not just build our capacity to talk about the way that racism plays a role in systemic hunger, but it also provides a way that we can apply a racial equity lens to the actual work that we do, both programmatically and with the external policies we support. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to go ahead uh, and, and share, you know, as, as we start this first inaugural episode, um, I wanted to remind folks how we even got to this podcast series to begin with. Um, as some of our network members know, uh, and as we shared in one of our webinars, uh, I actually wrote a blog series on race, COVID-19, and hunger, um, with the first one beginning on how this shows up uh, in uh, African-American communities, another uh, uh, focusing on indigenous communities and another on uh, Latino communities. And as you know, Donald, it got a lot of traction. And, uh, you know, the only reason that I actually only uh, wrote that blog series uh, was because of a pretty sad uh, experience I had at the outbreak of, of COVID-19. I needed to go to the store, pick up some stuff, and when I was there, I overheard um, a conversation between two uh, employees of color, and you know they 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 were standing there in the aisle um, as I passed, and they asked, you know, does my life really matter? And uh, the reason that they said that is they were talking with each other is because it didn't seem like that is that was the case, considering the fact that they were being forced 
to go to work. Um, they were uh, exposing themselves to the virus and exposing their households to the virus when they were coming home. In many ways, I remember wanting to turn around and say, yeah, of course, your life, it matters, especially being an African-American woman myself and understanding the importance of affirming other uh, people of color, right? Your life matters. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is our policies actually don't reflect that. So that's really what uh, sparked, if you will, the blog series, uh, which later sparked the podcast series that we're having. Yeah, Marlise, and unfortunately, that conversation is happening all over the country. And unfortunately, that is our reality. And that's one of the reasons we need to change the reality, which hopefully this podcast series will help inform that. And I will say that I am happy that during this series, our audience will be able to hear directly from African-American, Indigenous, and Latinx leaders who can help us think through these issues from a racial equity lens so that we have analysis and also recommendations for addressing hunger and other related issues during the season of COVID-19. Me too. And uh, I just want to say our first three episodes will be focusing on uh, African-American leaders. And, you know, as an African-American leader myself, I'm excited to be leading uh, this first set of episodes. Uh, After we'll be transitioning uh, to speaking with Indigenous leaders uh, for the episodes on race, COVID-19, and hunger in Indigenous communities. And I'm proud to say that our fellow co-chair, Marianne Bugs, um, who's also Indigenous herself, will be leading that set of series. And our last set of series, uh, we'll have the pleasure of speaking with Latino leaders um, on, uh, on race, hunger, and COVID-19 in Latino communities. And we'll have our fellow co-chair, Monica Gonzalez, who's uh, Latina, uh, who will be leading that set of series. So I just, I wanted to, to share that because um, I just want to affirm uh, the great intentionality and the, the care and the thought behind each one, right? Um, that we're really practicing what we're preaching, which is racial equity, just even with the process of, of, our, of our podcast. Yes, couldn't agree more. And a big part of racial equity means that the people from the communities that we're serving and talking about and talking to need to be the ones shaping the narrative and leading with the internal partnership and support of white colleagues, like the role that I'm playing now. So in this, we hope to model as co-chairs how racially equitable processes should look like, even in the way we are presenting this podcast series. Okay, let's get started, shall we? Yeah. completely honored to welcome a dear colleague of mine, Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith, who is a senior associate for Pan-African and Orthodox Church Engagement at Bread for the World, uh, which everyone knows is uh, the place that I work um, over the last five years. I've had the pleasure of uh, working with Angelique. I have had the pleasure of co-chairing our um, African-American and Pan-African uh, work together uh, with her, um, and I just have also had the pleasure of seeing her put into action what racial equity means when it comes to centering uh, the leadership and the voices of uh, people of African descent. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, Angelique. I'm so excited that you're with us today. 
It's truly my honor, Marlisa, and kudos to you for your work and what you're doing to address this very urgent issue. God bless you. And thank you, Angelique, for being here. We're really excited. So could you start off with just sharing a little bit about the historical trauma that African-Americans have had to experience in this country, uh, which has informed what we're seeing right now with COVID-19? Yes, as we well know, we've had over 400 years of people of African descent in this space in the United States affected by trauma. It's collective trauma, it's individual trauma, and we continue to see the legacy of trauma going forward with the generations to come. We have seen this in terms of the lives of work, uh, the issues that people of African descent have engaged, not only in the workplace, but in their uh, space for spiritual life. Uh, there's been assault uh, uh, in the uh, worship spaces. I mean, we can cite the number of church burnings, for example, over the years that have actually traumatized the actual place of refuge of people of African descent. We remember most recently, probably, the martyred nine in Charleston, South Carolina as one of the examples that I cite here. So this trauma has had no differential around where it is or how it is. And so this collective and individualized experience has affected any and everything that has uh, to do with people of African descent in this country. When we go global, we already know the legacy of colonialism, neo-colonialism, and the vestiges therein and thereafter. So this is a historic issue. And what we see even today with the understandable unrest of what's going on now is the outcry to stop. I, I really appreciate that. For our viewers who are not necessarily familiar with the term historical trauma, can you kind of uh, weigh in on what this means and why it's so important that we look at that when we're thinking about, um, you know, addressing then um, any problem that we're, that we're seeing, why historical trauma is important and what it is. So one of the things I want to say with full transparency is I consider myself a Sankofa woman. What that means is I believe everything in a moment has everything to do with the past and the future in the same moment. Greeks call that kairos. There's this chronos, which we're wedded to in the Western world. That is to say, you know, January, February, March, numerical numbers and all of that. That's chronos. That's a linear approach to time. Greeks also have a term called kairos that says, no, we live in the moment of the time as well. That's really what Sankofa is. And it means that you live in the moment of spirit, that you are the embodiment of your ancestors and you are the parentage of the future. So I wanna say in full transparency, I believe that is the reality. And we live so much in a Western notion of what chronos is that we forget that we really are the children of the past and we are the parentage of the future. So I just wanna name that, okay? So that's my first point. So when we, take what the Greeks have said and also what African um, spirituality has said as using the term Sankofa. And they, by the way, the term of a bird that looks frontwards and backwards is the image of that and certainly in traditional African society. 
when we really fully embrace the moment, then we understand that there is no way we can divorce ourselves from the past or the future. We are the embodiment of the moment. If we take that seriously, and I think scripture is also very clear about that because we remember the New Testament was written in Koine Greek and uses the term Kairos and Kronos, except that we are English interpreters and, or other languages, we don't use the Koine Greek. When we really do that exegetical work, we will know that we are called as people of faith to live in the moment of Kairos and of Kronos. So all of that to say, <laughs> For me, you cannot escape God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's all related to the same concept. So if we dismiss anything that's come before us, then we dismiss part of our existence today. If we dismiss a vision of what's going forward, we have also dismissed part of where we need to go in the future. So for me, that's foundational in my comments. Biologically and mentally, we are also the, uh, the descendants of those who we are related to. I'm very clear, there are things in my family DNA that I particularly have strong points on. You know, my DNA, I understand that there's certain things that make me look more like certain persons in my family. I think we all do this. When a new baby's born, the first thing people say is, oh my gosh, she's got so-and-so's feet or she's got whatever, you know? So there's that DNA, there's that biological piece, right? Then there's that mental disposition. Now, regrettably, we have seen in psychology today, in fact, I was at a recent conference, I was talking about this even just a few months ago, we have seen where the actual, the actual body types, the actual mentality of people, particularly of African descent, has actually changed because of the years of assault of people of African descent. It is being argued that things like our disposition to things like hypertension or cardiovascular disease or some other things, not to also mention the structural kinds of concerns, contribute to this moment that we're in, that there's actually been physical change and that it's contributed to particular dispensations and dispositions of people who have been historically assaulted in the ways that people, at least in this case, of African descent have. So to dismiss the history, and not only the history, but the truth and the truths of the history is actually to dismiss one's identity and one's humanity. And that is not sanctification, that's desanctification. And people of goodwill as well as people of faith are called to sanctify and to bless our humanity. And that I believe is what is being called for in this moment of unrest. So I think to do otherwise is unacceptable. Um especially for some, for people like me that are white, because I hear this when I do the work that we do in equity and inclusion training from white people that why can't we just accept the path, move forward? Why, it's so painful. Let's just not think about those difficult things. Let's just move forward together. And, you know, a lot of uh, people, especially white people, don't realize how critically important it is to understand the history that has built this system of oppression and 
and how connected we are to it as white people, whether we unconsciously or consciously or some combination of uh, that and contribute to that. So the, thank you for putting in the way that you, you did. We just learned about the importance of looking at historical trauma to understand the conditions we see today of people of African descent. Let's learn more. So as we know, related to the existential reality that I've just tried to point to, and also the personal space of how people have existed in this space, Related to that, of course, are the structures and systems that have impacted all of this. Now, this is where I get to work with good people like Marlisa and trying to not only dismantle, but speak to the policies that continue to do harm, traumatize people of African descent and, and other communities I might name, but we're talking about people of African descent right now. In terms of the care, People of African descent have been very innovative and very creative of how we care for each other. After the enslavement period, it is very instructive to note that one of the first things that people of African descent did was two things. They created churches. They incorporated, my church was founded in 1880, right after the, um, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. We had already been meeting in secret in the bushes and other places during the enslavement period. But in 1880, we finally, finally got uh, the legal sanction to incorporate because people of African descent could not have legal institutions, as you know. So one of the first things we did was we used the tools we had and we incorporated our institutions. We incorporated historic black colleges and universities. We called for the government to do the right thing during the reconstruction era. But one of the other things that we did was we ran to find who was related to us biologically. We sought out people who we thought would be our families who were separated from us, systematic for over the past 250 years. We ran. And when we couldn't find who those persons were, we made our own families called extended families. Extended families, not only of our kindred who may have been biologically related to us, but those who were close to us. And so we have terms even today that we refer to, that's my play cousin, or that's my play sister. That, that all comes out of this season of finding sanctuary within our families, and within our churches to care for one another. Happily, the vestiges of that are still in place in many places. There's been a breakdown of some of those things, but for the most part, you can still see where those things are functioning. Even as we see protests, we know protesters are creating new families, new extended relationships. I was just on the streets yesterday and you know, it was beautiful. I was brought in immediately to have food and to have fellowship. And you know, what you got to say, you know, I mean, it, it, this is all coming out of this sense of care for one another that is particularly striking in communities of African identity because we've had to be. And so as we go forward, it will be important for those who are not of that identity to have, have regard for that, to have respect for that and to, to say, 
we we want to be in relationship with you in a way which you're not which those communities are not dominating those communities but coming alongside and the good news is there have been those who have historically come alongside of us in this regard we have the underground railroad we think about we think about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and we, I mean, we, who can, went to a black church and who's of German ancestry in New York back in the day during King. I mean, we have these histories where those who may not be of African descent have been embraced, who, who have embraced us to come alongside of us in our journey. And so everyone has an opportunity to care for one another. That's what scripture teaches. But the problem is, is, how it is people come alongside to each other to alongside with each other otherwise it becomes something that we don't want yeah and i actually wonder angelique um in many ways i feel like your response um very justifiably so was centering around the care that we as people of african descent have uh created the conditions for our community right to survive within right and in many ways it shows the culture of resistance which we're we're fully uh knowledgeable about right but on the flip side would you be able to just kind of give a little bit of insight for our listeners um to understand well what has been the current care um in this crisis from kind of the larger general community at, in respects to people of African descent in the U.S. I mean, we're talking about healthcare with doctors, how we've been treated by employers, um, how we've been turned away. Can you talk about the lack of care um, given to us during this crisis? Well, I thank you, Marlisa because I did, I went right to our communities because some people forget we have our own agency. And I think yeah. it's important people understand. It's not that we're asking for favors. We have our own agency. I think it's important, but I think your question is just as important. And unfortunately, as we know only too well, this country has not really had a priority on caring for people of African identity. They have not. We have systematically defunded healthcare, although it's supposed to be increasing. I mean, there are states that still don't accept. I mean, we, we have this history. We have this history of lynchings. We have this history of fires. We have this history of all kinds of challenges that have shown where our broader society has not cared for us. So in the COVID-19 season, this has become very visible very much exposed as to what we have not done with our policies and have not done with the supports that are deserving of our people in this moment. So we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of catching up to do. When we cut off the progress that was being made during the reconstruction period, when we cut that off, we have time and time again come back to moments like this that expose what our greater society has not done to properly care for people of African descent. It's a systematic non-response of goodwill that has to be called into question. Until we have at least goodwill 
we will not have care for those of African identity. For hunger relief, folks that work in the food insecurity uh, world, people that work really in the um, world of dismantling systemic racism, what are some recommendations or, or next steps that you have for us? The first one is stop killing us. I mean, it's really very simple. Stop killing us. I mean, we have for the last few weeks seen not just George Floyd, but we've seen several others in this season who have been physically assaulted by the people who we're supposed to trust to protect us, who are supposed to be our guardians, not our warriors, but our guardians. So the first thing is stop killing us. Number two, stop putting us in prisons. What I am saying, there are alternatives to this kind of punishment and penal approach that we have toward people of African descent who are disproportionately represented in our prisons. It needs to stop. The third thing is, those are immediate things we need to do because people are literally dying at the hands in these situations. Stop the killing. That's urgent. That's now. Stop. Number two, in terms of hunger, we need policies that are going to support, that's what a safety net is, to support those who have not been able to benefit from a system called capitalism and from those who have been systematically assaulted because of the color of their skin. We need that. So we do need SNAP programs. We do need food security policies. We do need all of those things that provide wraparound supports to make sure there is a place there to show the care of those at least who would choose to express it, goodwill. That's number two. Number three, uh, sorry, number four, I guess it is. Uh, Marlisa is really helping us to reframe how do we look at all of our policies from an equitable lens, a racial equitable lens. We need to pay attention to her because she's helping us to do that. And she can speak more directly to those particular points. We commend her for helping us with that. The Congressional Black Caucus has done that historically. Yes, more with the lens of the lens of equality, but I also think there's also been some lens there for equity as well. We need to figure that out. The other point is that we have to give serious consideration to, and I know this is a more difficult issue, is reparatory justice. Not just reconciliation, no, reparatory justice. What I, when I say reparatory justice, what I mean is we've got to figure out a way to repair the systems and the policies that have brought us to this point of alienation when it comes to people of African descent. There have been reforms. I'm a child of those reforms, okay? We need to look at that and say, how far did they go? How far have they haven't gone? We need to look at where we've regressed, like on the voters' right, the the voters' right um, uh, piece that the legislation, well, it should be legislated, but it's in the Supreme Court, where that needs to be redressed. We've regressed on those issues. 
Uh, we need to go back and look at that. We need to look at this study for HR 40 that says let's have a study on what it means to look at repairing and reparatory justice. That HR 40 is not even making recommendations around reparations. It's saying let's study what we haven't done and what it is we need to do. To me, HR 40 is the most comprehensive approach around looking at the economics, looking at uh, domestic and even global policies that have affected directly people of African descent. For over 250 years, people of African descent worked, were not compensated, were oppressed. There, there has to be some conversation about that. Our Jewish friends, our Japanese friends and others have benefited from looking back as to what it means for this moment in terms of reparatory justice. This is not a novel proposal. This is a moment, a moment for us to think about how do we repair the inequities that are before us. I'm curious to know before we uh, log off on Jalik, if you have any other final words that you wanna leave our audience with. Well, I wanna thank you for the opportunity to express my perceptions in this moment. Uh, this is much appreciated. But what I really guess I would like to say is, whereas for some this may appear as a moment of confrontation, it is not. It is a moment for all of us to benefit. You see, the Bible is clear. When we heal with someone who we think is the other, when we reach out to people who we know are unfamiliar to us or who we say are our enemies, when we figure out what it is the quote, the so-called other has to say about something and we're able to have a space of hospitality, all of us benefit. This is what it means to have the term, no justice, no peace. When you speak honestly, create spaces of hospitality, when the so-called other is able to really be authentically in the space, in the moment, that's your opportunity for all of us to be healed. When one is healed, all of us is healed. When groups are healed, all of us are healed. This is not about we take yours, you take mine, or you, I mean, it's not that. This is an opportunity for all of us to be in authentic community. This beloved community, as Dr. King talked about. The book of Acts talks about the spirit, the season that we're in in Pentecost, this moment for all of us, all of us to benefit, not from reconciliation, but also from repair that all of us not only can survive, but so that all of us can thrive. So I really hope people see these moments as opportunity and thank God that people feel that they can express and hopefully will be received so all of us can thrive. Well, thank you, Dr. Walker-Smith, that was yeah, just absolutely and tremendously important for us to hear. And I'm grateful, so grateful that we captured it in this podcast because hundreds, if not thousands of people 
are going to hear that. And so thank you so much for sharing. We just heard from Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith of Bread for the World. Stay tuned to hear from other African-American leaders to see how COVID-19 is impacting African-American communities. All right, everyone, and we're back. And we are really excited right now to be with our next guest, Reverend Rosalind Bouillet, the Chief Executive Director at Brightmore Connection, one of Detroit's largest food banks. So we're going to get right into it with our first question. Reverend Bouillet, can you explain how COVID-19 is impacting the African-American community right now within the scope of your work? The, yes, I can. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. Also, I should um, <clears throat> excuse me, leave with that first. Um, I'm very honored to be here. In regards to how COVID-19 is impacting African communities right now, I need to say prior to COVID-19, it was bad. It was already bad um, in black and brown communities, most especially in Brightmore, where uh, the pantry is located, which is a sub-community within Detroit. But um, since COVID-19, it has only exacerbated what was already going on. Prior to COVID-19, families were were already experiencing disenfranchisement. Um, The uh, community of Brightmore has the highest population of water shutoffs, and um, along with um, the highest population of infant mortality deaths in the womb and out of the womb due to water insecurity. Brightmore has the highest, one of the highest population um, areas with um, lack of uh, uh, housing security and um, economic infrastructure. And so prior to COVID-19, it was already in a very uh, disabled, um, disengaged state. It's been um, one of the most disinherited communities within the city of Detroit. And so with COVID-19 onset, it was already percolating and the pot just boiled over. And that's where we find ourselves at right now within the um, community of Brightmore and the outer community of Detroit as well. Yes. Reverend Bouye, I am very uh, curious if you can go a little deeper uh, just for our audience so that they understand when you say housing insecurity, when you say um, water shutoffs and water insecurity, um, what do you mean exactly? Okay, sure. So water insecurity shows up um, in Detroit, in Michigan. Um, because of water shutoffs. Detroit has the um, insidious behavior pattern of shutting water off to households if they are not able to pay the bill. Now, we need to understand why folks are not able to pay the bills, right? Um, and that's because of most of, and first and foremost, the socioeconomic issue, right? Because as I shared in Brightmore and in the city of Detroit, black and brown populations of not being um, employed or I should say underemployed, right? Um, because it's, there's not livable wages earning um, uh, happening in, in Detroit. But we need to look at the water shutoff issue in itself. Um, Detroit has this policy of where if you're unable to pay your bill, then you're shut off from water. It doesn't matter if people, folks in your home are sick, children, um, you know, none of that matters. And so also with that uh, policy, 
we have been able to um, map and, and come to understand that the largest population of those experiencing water shutoffs, 80% of that population is black women with small children. So <clears throat> we see this happening in a major city uh, where folks are denied access to water. The bill normally ranges between 100 to $300. And the reason being because people are charged for water, excuse me, for um, water, sewage, and drainage. Drainage is when the water comes from the sky and runs mm -hmm. off your roof and down your gutters and to the ground and to the manhole in the ground. That's a drainage fee. And people are charged for that. That's a mm -hmm. monthly charge. Yes. Unheard of. It's insidious in and of itself. But the reality that black women with small children are the targeted audience for this policy continues to uphold the systemic racism that's underlying and supporting this agenda. We need to understand also with the housing issue, the wall housing and security issue, because once again, housing becomes important factor for black women with small children. Stable housing is a, it's important for everyone. You know, um, right now we're in the, we're living through the midst of a pandemic, and I see the commercial on TV every day. We're all in this together. No, we're not all in this together. We should stop advertising that. We should stop lifting that up for no other reason than the fact that ninety percent of the population in Detroit alone sits within communities where housing security is not guaranteed. You're not in a position of sheltered in state if you don't have water. If you're forced to exist without water and stable housing, that is not considered to be a place of shelter. Shelter is defined as a place of safety and security and a place that affords comfort. None of those terms apply when your water shut off and you're unsure whether or not you'll be in the same home from day to day. We, the pantry has been raising funds and we've been restoring water, um, preventing water interruption and uh, providing emergency housing for folks for, uh, forced to exist, excuse me, forced into illegal, um, um, excuse me, house uh, uh, eviction, my, my apologies. And so we've had to step in to do what government and what local city should be doing, right? And we're a small organization, a small nonprofit, but because we're a social service provider, and, and, and that's something I know we'll talk about soon in this call, um, this podcast, but as a social service provider, we see the direct need of what makes the Brightmore Connection so unique is we see the direct need for um, aligning with local organizing coalitions to disrupt and challenge water injustice, housing injustice, lack of affordable housing, lack of earned paid sick time. You know, um, these things are what's necessary to stabilize any community, but most especially in a community such as Brightmore, which is, I'm sure, just the normal community in every city and every state in America where black and brown bodies exist and are forced to exist without the, just the basic necessities. Wow, and, and well, let's, let's carry on, you know, with that, because th that is, um, 
you know, powerful and really the point of the podcast to ultimately find solutions for addressing systemic, you know, oppression that affects, you know, black and, and, and brown bodies. So can you tell us, Reverend yeah. B, yeah, what that looks like or what, what ideally it would look like to you to have this type of coalition that would be working towards addressing all the systemically oppressive issues that affect black and brown bodies in Detroit? So thank you. Yes. So what we see is the need of, of advocacy. We, 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 we're in a, a state where, especially right now, right, we're seeing protests and um, gatherings and challenging systemic racism that has been going on and allowed for over 400 years. And in like manner, in black and brown and poor communities, we continue to see socioeconomic injustices which is the same, it's the same thing. It just shows up differently. Differently, It's still racial oppression. It's still racial insensitivity, right? We recognize that to be just for what it is. And so we know policy work is our number one goal. If we can shift policy, we need to, we need to challenge the policies that are already in existence. We need to disrupt the narratives that uphold the policies that are unjust. And we need to shift and to redirect new policy. And to do that, we need to always be willing to align ourselves with citywide coalition groups that advocate for and against injustice, right? We need to understand that social service providers by themselves have to be willing to organize with local groups. And in that, it was just, that's, excuse me, that's what makes the pantry unique um, because we made it our goal to do advocate, advocacy work we do a door-to-door knocking, we do canvassing, we march, we do phone call, phone banks. We just heard about the importance of engaging in organizing efforts to engage the realities that we see today in regards to racism's impact on African-American communities, both before the pandemic and during. Let's learn more. The long term is policy work. And so, and the policy work should have the most impacted at the table to represent their interests, right? Um, what we see far too often is um, policy being generated around presuppositions. And that's dangerous in so, in, on so many levels. And so what we need to do is deconstruct that, that, that policy that already exists um, in going into creating policy. We have to be willing to challenge what has been, been considered to be the normal pa- uh, pattern of policy create, of policy making, and challenge who sits at the table, because that's a big problem as well. Oftentimes, we have people representing community who are not even in community. And so, um, some of the, for some of the concrete steps that moves us forward is um, at organizing and um, creating coalitions that um, challenge the uh, groups that consider themselves to be in power, and then challenge. And then here's something we have to, that we no one ever wants to talk about is why do we so willingly, um, consistently give our power away to outside organizations to come in and to decide and discern what's best for those who are most impacted? And that's something that we've, um, especially in Black and Brown communities, we've seen that through um, years of missiology through years of mission, um, charity, 
um, saviorism, right? When really what we need is strong economic infrastructure in black and brown communities so that we create agency, recreate agency and self-determination and then allow folks to decide what's best and we step back. Oftentimes we don't see that happening. And that's because of the wealth that's attached to grants and organizing. And when I say that, I mean, I need to be specific. When I talk about the wealth that's generated from grants and from um, philanthropy groups, I'm talking about when far too often we see white male center groups come into a community, appropriate the work that's already being done, commodify the black brown bodies that are in the community for the purposes of getting grant money. And the grant uh, philanthropic groups will, will uh, give grants, larger grant funding to white male center or white, white multicultural organizations who do not prioritize blackness in a majority black city. That's problematic. And so we need to challenge that as well. That's a system of, of racial oppression that has been constantly lifted up and upheld in quote unquote circles of righteous work. And so we need to challenge that. We need to call that to task as well. So when we look at the ways for concrete next steps, we have to be willing to say, what is it that we've kept going and that we're guilty and complicit in? And what is it that we're willing to challenge and change to move in the needle forward for long-term sustainable change? And we know that it's possible. It's not as if it's, it can't be done. We just need to honor blackness and brownness in communities. And we're not seeing that. So I'm curious to know, Dr. Bou or Reverend Bou uh, Bouillet, if um, like more about the coalition stuff. I'm just wondering, I'm thinking about folks who are in our network who are probably thinking, okay, great. I do coalition work. And I know from speaking with some of them that their coalition work um, is very duplicative um, of the microcosm that they often have in their organizations, whereby it's predominantly white. They're trying to get better. Um, can you let them know how they can get better? What does success look like? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so the first thing that needs to happen is racial sensitivity and racial oppression training. And then out of that Conflict resolution should be birthed out of that, right? We know that's needed because the organizations I'm sure and the coalitions I'm sure you're referring to as, the, as with the ones I am are majority white-led, right? And as a rule, we need to understand the first rule of allyship. The first rule of allyship is allies do not lead. Allies bring their power to the table. They step back and they allow the folks who are most impacted, they, they allow community, black and brown, to step up and, and um, be able to um, lift up their power, access their power, uh, the uh, power of the allies. But allies are not, should not be in leadership. And we see that everywhere, far too often, where allyship is leading and it should not be leading. And that's because most uh, nine times out of 10, we're seeing these organizational coalitions as well-meaning as they are, because I'm not saying some are not well-meaning, but still we need to understand what that does 
what we're saying, we're saying we're not honoring blackness and we're saying that we still are expecting or the coalition in and of itself believes it needs to come and salvage and save a community and not empower and strengthen economic infrastructure and community. Those are entirely two different things. And so that's the problem. That's one of the first problems. And so we need to understand that as coalitions, another thing is, and I'm sorry, I, I just, I need to back up a, a bit and say, as uh, most coalitions we see are multiracial, multi-faith, interdenominational, which is wonderful, which is what it should be. But we should never prior, prioritize multiracial constructs over blackness in any community that's majority black. That just doesn't make sense. And so we see that happening too, too much. And so what we're seeing now, um, especially with COVID-19 and with in this current climate in, the, in, in, in our nation right now, right? The boiling over, um, the uh, precipitousness that we're seeing and experiencing is because of Years of this oppression. This is oppressiveness that we find even in our own coalitions and organizations. And then, like I shared with you earlier, this one specific group that I, I had to step back from. I stepped back out of the group because at the beginning of COVID-19, um, everyone, you know, I'm sure is aware, listening audience is aware, the rapid response money that came out for frontline providers. Well, if you've never been a frontline provider, now is not the time to jump up and be a frontline provider because you bottleneck up resources that communities have, are in desperate need of who are frontline providers. But what happens is, is that's the appropriation and opportunistic behavior that we have seen continuously happen in coalition and, organize, and organizations that seem to feel they know what's best for black and brown communities and they're the best equipped to manage it and disperse it. And so now what we're seeing happening is all of this CARES money that's being released and it's supposed to go into community, but once again, it will go to organizations that are white male, predominantly white male central led or multi-racial organizations that do not prioritize blackness and the, uh, the concept that black can lead and direct in and of itself. And so that's what we're seeing when we see coalition uh, in coalitions. And so that's one of the things, the first things that your audience should challenge within their own coalitions and organizations. Have we done the heavy lifting? Have we taken, have we, have we participated? Is that part of the community agreement in this coalition? Because coalitions and organizations should have community agreements, right? Mutual understandings that's required to, for us to just do the work. Before we do anything else, the foundation should be rooted in just thinking, and that's rooted in racial sensitivity and racial oppression, because once again, the majority of, of, of coalition um, is white-led, and so we have to understand that while you, and, and I don't want to sound uh, nationalist, um, but I want to make sure we're clear on this, that if we're not careful, then what we'll do is water down what we're trying to shift and change, right? Everybody has a piece in it, you know? I always say nobody gets a pass. Nobody gets, to, you know, nobody gets to come out of this clean because it's filthy to begin with. But the good thing about it is if we're willing to do it together, jointly and acknowledge that this need exists and are not um, um, uncomfortable in the uncomfortableness of racial sensitivity and racial oppression training, right? It's not a comfortable place to be. We know that, 
that's that's clear. But it's even more uncomfortable in black, brown, and poor communities when they're disenfranchised, when we're seeing communities disenfranchised and then rooted in um, these coalitions with this same mindset and not being addressed. So when we talk about going into shift and change and direct policy, we need to be clear on our own policies first, right? We need to understand what our agenda is. Can I just jump in here and say how much I appreciate that point, Reverend Bouillet? I want to make sure that folks don't lose sight of what was just said. It is so, so, so important that organizations and coalitions take an internal reflection of what their agenda is. This is in terms of who has access to decision-making power and who does not. Um, This is in terms of how we're practicing racial equity in our own processes, or are these processes furthering racism? How are we relating to community? Are we being allies with community? Or are we um, leading, right? Are we being allies in the term, in the sense of, are we using our privilege to elevate the voices, the power, the leadership, the expertise, the perspectives, the desires of community? Or are we leading when community should be? These are the types of questions that we really need to ask ourselves, right? As we're in organizations, as we're in coalitions. So I just want to appreciate your point, Reverend Bouillet, because I don't want our network to lose that. And I really do believe that as we're doing policy and advocacy work, Right. We also need to make sure we're making sure that our internal house is in order um, in terms of not maintaining or reproducing racial oppression, which is exactly what you're saying. Right. Um, That we cannot reproduce racial oppression in our internal policies and practices, which is what you're seeing is happening in the coalition building um, and network um, building that, that you're engaging in. And I completely agree. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, as we conclude our time, Reverend Bouye, I, I'm curious to know if there are any other recommendations that you have for our audience as they engage in dismantling racism, uh, during the season of COVID-19. At this juncture, we have no other alternative but to disrupt and challenge narratives that have been existent for so long. And one of the biggest one is coalitions and organizations have to do the work separately outside of impacted communities. And then there's the mindset of, well, we'll bring someone from the impacted community to the table. No, the impacted community should be the table. That should be that, that should be the case. And, but that's because we see that showing up because in America, right, we know Black and brown communities have been, quote unquote, the wealth, right? Black and brown bodies have been what this country has built wealth off of. It has been the wealth. And so now we want to redirect the wealth and say, well, we're going to shift and bring um, a a stronger socioeconomic base into black and brown communities. Well, let's understand why that need is, is there to begin with. And so that pushes us into the philanthropic circle, right? We need to talk about funders because funders historically um, 
we all know how their monies have been accumulated, good, bad, or indifferent. But we also have to talk about the fact that funders, and, I, and I've been funded by one specific organization for 10 years, and I'm constantly pushing them and calling them to task on their white privilege of deciding that they're going to fund and support black and brown and poor communities in, um, in and of itself, but they're not willing to let black and brown women, most especially, lead in these communities. That's, that's a big problem. And so what we'll see in funding circles is that black women run around doing all the heavy lifting. We meet and we have these talks and we do these galvanization of organization and advocacy, and then we get balls rolling, right? And I'm not saying black men aren't doing it either. I'm just speaking, you know, from what I know historically to be truth for uh, the role of black women. And as a womanist interpreter, I have to say that's basically how it shows up because black women have been the nurturers and the, the sustainers of communities in and of itself, right? So yet, why is it so um, normalized that black and brown women have to do so much more, jump through so many more hoops, have to do so many more reports to get five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars grants, twenty thousand dollars grants. The hundred thousand dollars grants are given, and then what they'll do is they'll um, attach an, what I call an overseer, a white led group, um, to um, lend quote unquote credibility and um, validity to the work that's already being done. Because the only way that this grant could have come about is because of the capacity building of these black and brown women and yet are not allowed to manage and to um, take, you know, a seat at the table with everyone else. That's problematic. And, and we see it too often. We need to start calling that out too. You know, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's a dance, right? It's a, a dance that we're forced to do where we keep silent to get this amount of funds into community and, and to, um, to keep, um, everything uh, comfortable for those who are uncomfortable at the table. Mm. We're not willing to honor blackness, but we're willing to honor the work of blackness as long as someone else manages the money. Mm. And and we need to challenge Mm. that. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And, and the way we do that, I got to say, is through creating economic infrastructure in black and brown communities. But we know you can't budget your way out of poverty. Thank you, Reverend Bouye. I appreciate that. You can't budget your way out of poverty and we need economic infrastructure. I want to uplift this because many service providers, as you mentioned in the beginning of this interview, are triages, right? Focusing on the most important things right now. But something that we all need to recognize and that you so elegantly recognize is the importance of preventing the triage from needing to take place um, to begin with, right? And that's part of what you were saying in terms of the need for policy and advocacy. Another part of what you were saying is not only policy and advocacy, but also economic infrastructure. And, you know, what we mean by economic infrastructure is really focusing and addressing the racial wealth divide by increasing uh 
wealth building opportunities in communities, which is needed also too on the funder side, right? As, as you were mentioning in terms of like, you know, what funders are, are funding, funders need to start funding wealth building pathways for black communities um, from co-op uh, store grocery stores, right? Maybe instead of food banks, right? Um, to actual uh, financial banks, right? And everything in between from housing, businesses, so on and so forth. Because it's through the wealth building piece that we will truly see community ownership, right? In literal and figurative terms, um, as well as the direct reduction of things that we talked about today, like hunger, housing insecurity, uh, water insecurity, um, that you said happened obviously before COVID-19, but we know that's only exacerbating during the COVID-19 season. Um, and it all is, is as a result of us not addressing the root, right? Which we know is systemic racism and systemic racism has fueled the racial wealth divide. So thank you so much. We cannot budget our way out of poverty. We need economic infrastructure. Reverend Bouye, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. We just listened to Reverend Rosalind Bouye on the impact of racism on African-American communities in Detroit before and during the season of COVID-19. Stay tuned for a brief recap of today's episode. Wow, what was a main highlight to you, Donald, um, as you listened to this first episode? You know, for me, it has to be the role of philanthropy both before COVID-19 and during this pandemic in either exacerbating racism or disrupting it. You know, and funders have an opportunity to center blackness and center black nonprofits in their funding, as they also have a role in funding justice-oriented initiatives that lead to wealth creation and black-owned and black-led economic infrastructure, instead of only funding charity-oriented initiatives, like many funders tend to fund. This is, you know, as Reverend Bouyer was saying, increases power for black communities, which is needed in achieving racial equity. What about you? I would say for me, it has to be the concept of allyship, which Reverend Dr. Um, Angelique Walker-Smith actually mentioned, and so did uh, Reverend Bouyer. This is really about the solidarity piece that we talked about and how you enter the work. Are you embracing uh, the culture, the leadership, the resilience, the expertise, and the power of people of African descent? Or are you just kind of reinforcing some of the notions of racial oppression that already exist? Are you leading, right? Or are you thinking about what's best? Uh, are you thinking that you think you know what's best for the community? Uh, these are all kind of indications that you're probably reinforcing racial oppression or um, is community in all of the processes leading in all of the processes and um, so on and so forth. And uh, I believe that our network can actually take these principles and implement them as a, as a way to move forward. If they don't take anything else, for me, I would say allyship means that you are not leading. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
Be sure to tune in to our next episode that will focus on the economic impacts of COVID-19 on African-American communities. You've just listened to a brief recap of today's episode. This series is titled Race, Hunger, and COVID-19 and is sponsored by the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network. Learn more about the network, including how to access additional tools, blogs, and webinars, and tune in to future podcasts at racialequityhunger.org.